0: Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. My name is Tom. I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship, and it is my joy to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking <clears throat> excuse me. at Titus chapter 3. If you have one of these church Bibles, that's page 647. You can turn there. Titus chapter 3, 647 in the church Bibles. Here at Grace Fellowship Church... We've been doing a short sermon series on the church principles. Uh, these, The principles are kind of a summary of what we believe the Bible says, and uh, it makes up who we are and what we focus on here at Grace Fellowship. And we have three church principles creatively entitled Grace, Fellowship, and Church. We also sneakily add an introduction in there that talks about the worth of the scriptures, but, you know, we like to cheat like that, so... Uh, <laughs> If you're new to Grace Fellowship Church, these uh, this four-part series, where we're in, we're in the second one today, are, is going to be really helpful for you finding out what this church is all about and what we believe. Uh, if you're not new here, well, I pray you're blessed by the preaching of the word anyway. Uh, today we're going to talk about the grace principle. Here at Grace Fellowship, we talk about grace a lot. Every single week we talk about it, and that's because we believe that grace is on every page of the scriptures and every time we open the Bible we see God's grace there and so uh, the Bible is calling us to, to see grace, to know grace to love grace and to live in light of grace and that's what we try to do here at Grace Fellowship every week so what do we mean by grace when we use that term, what are we talking about uh, the answer to that is on the back of your outline This is uh, we have written out for you our grace principle and I'm going to go ahead and read that with you right now our relationship with God, through its beginning, development, and completion, is completely by grace through faith alone. By grace, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, the Lord calls us to repent of the sin that indwells us. By grace, he transforms us into his image over time, until we stand perfected before him in heaven. We, know, <coughs> excuse me, we never go out of our need for God's grace. It is the way we know God and become more like him. We seek to minister God's grace to the heart in all our relationships. We extend his grace by patiently working to know each other at the heart level, by speaking the truth in love, and by constantly pointing each other to Christ. Our goal is that no one misses the grace of God. And indeed, that is our goal. And that's my goal this morning. As uh, we open Titus 3 and look at the word of God, I want to make sure that you guys do not miss the grace of God this morning. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at the Bible to see this grace. God, we come before you this morning as those who all too often miss the grace of God. God, it's true of me. I'm sure it's true of so many in this room that though your grace is on every page of the Bible, we can look at the Bible with eyes that do not see. We can listen with ears that do not hear. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would help me and everyone in this room to not miss the grace of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at Titus 3. We're just looking at a few verses today, uh, and we're gonna pa- unpack them to see grace. It's page 647 in the Church Bibles. The context here is that Paul, a follower, uh, of Jesus Christ and a missionary to those outside the Jewish culture, is writing a letter to his friend Titus. Titus is a pastor and Paul is trying to encourage him to teach and remind his church what the Bible said and what appropriate godly behavior looks like. He goes on here, in these verses we're going to look at, to say why he's been saying these things. Starting at verse 3 in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In these few short verses, Paul tells us a lot about grace. And you can see how we're going to cover this, how Paul covered this, right in your outline. Paul describes missed grace in verse 3. He explains saving grace in verses 4 through 6. He then explains future grace in verse 7. And lastly, he shows us how to apply grace in verse 8. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're just going to follow Paul's train of thought. I can't improve on what he's written, and so that's what we're trying to do. Let's talk about these things. Starting in verse 3, let me read that one more time for us. This is Missed Grace. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul here is describing the life of someone who has not yet become a Christian and is missing the grace of God. I knew a guy some years ago who illustrates Paul's point here rather clearly. Uh, this guy I knew, he had been raised in a church, and at the time I knew him, God wasn't a part of his life at all. His ethics, uh, dreams, decisions, relationships, everything about him had no room for God in them. He was generally a decent guy, but he was one of those types that would fly off the handle uh, and get angry or depressed when something set him off. It happened rather frequently. He had some friends, but those relationships uh, usually weren't very deep or long-lasting. Uh, not many people knew him particularly well, and in fact, I can't even say I really understood his motivations very well then, and I still am not sure I understand his motivations to this day. It was not uncommon for him to get angry at someone and brood over that for days, weeks, or even months. The, usually the cause of this anger was some form of jealousy. He was, uh, someone else would get something he wanted, whether that was a girl uh, a, winning a game, uh, maybe an accolade that someone else got that he thought he deserved. Now, from time to time, he'd talk about how he didn't want to be like this. He recognized his life was not... Working out very well, and so for even a few days or weeks, he would seem to have turned over a new leaf. But time after time, again and again, he would find himself right back where he started, if not worse, and even more depressed and defeated than previously. I remember he once said that he would summarize his life in words like lonely, fearful, angry, and trapped. Perhaps you know someone like this guy. Perhaps you yourself have experienced these feelings and would describe your life similarly. The Apostle Paul, in verse 3 here, is telling us that actually all of us are like that. All people are like that. We're all naturally foolish, disobedient, and led astray. In other words, all that we are is in opposition to what God has called us to be. And even if we wanted to change, like my friend did from time to time... He couldn't, and we couldn't, because we're slaves to our selfish passions and pleasures. So rather than experiencing joy and love and peace, we were regularly passing our days full of jealousy and hate toward one another and toward God. But why? Like, why would someone do that? Why not choose to love God and obey his commands and, and, and skip all that garbage? Well, the answer is simple. It's because we miss the grace of God. We think that God offers us nothing. He's just a big jerk in the sky and we do well to ignore him and just generally stay out of his way. We think that God's laws only lead to slavery, missing the fact that we're already in shackles in our sin. We think that God's wisdom only leads to foolishness, missing the fact that evidence of our own foolishness is all around us. We just ask the people who know us best and they'll be sure to tell us. We think that God's love is superficial, missing that we are being hated and hating one another day in and day out. And we think that God's grace is for the weak, the needy, and the broken, missing the fact that there are no truer words that could describe us. And because we miss these things, we actively, eagerly pursue a life apart from God. That's why these things happen. And so so instead of receiving God's wisdom, his love, his grace, the scriptures tell us that all our hate and wickedness and foolishness and disobedience dishonor God and offend God. And so we're therefore guilty of a form of cosmic treason against the God who is our king, who created us, who gave us his laws that we regularly break and pay no attention to. Therefore, he treats us accordingly. Like like those guilty of treason. He stores up his anger, his wrath, upon such rebellious people as this. And and his overwhelming wrath is poised like a boiling pot ready to pour out over all people who are guilty of this, like a deadly flood that would utterly destroy every single one of us. That's what the scriptures tell us. And would you and I go on missing the grace of God, we would indeed be destroyed in our sin as a result. And that's almost what happened to my friend. Almost. Let's look at the next verses to find out what actually happened to him instead. Let's talk about saving grace. Verses four through six. We're going to look at four and five first. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. What wonderful ears to the, or what wonderful words to the ears of the condemned sinner. This, my friends, is grace. This is what we're talking about. Sweet, precious, unexpected grace. In our darkest hour, in our hopeless state, God came to us not as an angry judge, but as a gracious Savior. Listen, friends, this grace here is why Christians exist. If verses 4 and 5 were not here in the Bible, there would be no reason for us to get together on Sunday mornings and sing all these songs there would be nothing to look forward to except the endless soul-destroying monotony of verse 3 over and over and over and over again. That would be it. But because these verses are here, our God has given us the joyful mission of going and telling others that they are not doomed to destruction by God's wrath, but rather they can experience the goodness, loving kindness, and grace of God, our Savior forever. That is good news. That is grace. And indeed, Through the witness of several faithful Christians, my friend, this guy who was broken, scared, and uncertain in all of life, finally stopped missing the grace of God. And he was saved by God's grace. He heard the message of God's love in sending his son, Jesus Christ, and he was saved on February 14th, 1999. Valentine's Day. How appropriate, right? But why did God save him? Why, why would God do that? Why did God save any of us if you call yourself a Christian in this room? Paul goes on to tell us in the rest of verse 5. It says, God saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Hey. Paul here makes things crystal clear for us in first stating it negatively and then positively. It was not because of works done by us, done by us in righteousness. It was not some good stuff that we did. And how could it have been? Did you see the list that Paul described in verse three that characterized us? Paul says, like, we have these stellar qualifications that will win God's favor, right? We we have we can gain His affections by the stupidity of our foolishness. Foolishness is that what we thought? Like, would that win Him, or was it the boldness of our disobedient rebellion? Would that cause God to swoon? Uh, you know, would it, was it the nobility of our hating one another that drew God's eye to us in deep love? No, this is all we had to offer, was brokenness and sin. So it couldn't have been anything we did, not our righteousness. Paul says in the positive, it was according to God's own mercy. His infinite goodness and loving and kindness drenched, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, mind-blowing, heart-transforming, life-giving mercy. Nothing to do with us. I want to be very clear on this because the Bible wants us to be very clear on this. Neither you, nor my friend, nor anyone else got their act together first so that then they'd be acceptable to God. It had absolutely nothing to do with your behavior or anything intrinsic in who you are. It was all God. It was all mercy. It was pure, undeserved grace. That, my friends, is why God saves. Paul then goes on in verse 6 to tell us how God saves because this is really important too. Verse 6 says, we were saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is so cool. Do you see how he saved us? He saved us, the Bible says, through the Trinity working together. Do you see this? God is called our Savior in verse 4, remember? And Jesus Christ is called our Savior here in verse 6. And the Holy Spirit is the one who performs the salvation by the means of the washing of regeneration and renewal. I wish, I wish I had time to explore this idea further, this wonderful doctrine of the Trinity, how God is three persons in one, but let me just, for now, simply answer this question as best I can. Who saved us? God the Father saved us by sending his Son. The Son saved us by dying for our sin on the cross and the Holy Spirit saved us by washing us so we were regenerated, that's generated again, and we were renewed, that's made new again. We were washed, our sins were totally washed away. God no longer sees our years and years of missing his grace and living sinful lives. All he sees is the face of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. If we don't miss the grace of God. So what does this mean for us here at Grace Fellowship Church in 2014? I have two applications for you. The first one is believe. Believe in the grace of our God who saves us by his mercy through Jesus Christ. For almost 20 years, my friend refused to believe this. He didn't see the need for a Savior. Though there was evidence all over his life of hate and loneliness and fear and broken relationships and all manner of sins... He simply didn't think that there was a God who could or would rescue him. But then he stopped missing the grace of God and believed. For those of you here this morning who haven't believed in Jesus' death, in your place on the cross that gives us access to God's grace, I plead with you this morning, please, do not go on missing it. And that's because the Bible gives you two options and only two options. Option one is that you believe this grace of God. You believe he saved you, not because of who you are and not because of what you've done, but because of his mercy and his grace. You believe and that Jesus, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins so you can be free, loved, and saved. That's option one. Sounds pretty sweet, right? Option two, not so much. Option two is that you remain a slave to your carnal passions and pleasures that deceive you, that cause you to hate, that foolishly entice you towards ever-deepening rebellion against the God who created you. God's wrath, my friends, will surely be poured out. The Bible promises us this. And it's either going to be on Jesus, on the cross, if you choose option one, or it's going to be on you if you choose option two. Those are the only two options. So friends, please don't go on missing the grace of God. Believe in this grace. It is freely offered to you because Jesus paid it all. Option, uh, application number two for all of us here. Don't go it alone. Once you've believed, you may be tempted to think that it's now just you and God. You know, you and Jesus can pal around and figure out holiness and you'll be great. Our grace principle though, if you remember, doesn't allow this interpretation. We don't allow that interpretation here, and I don't think the Bible does. Did you Do you remember the relational words used in that principle? Words like relationships and each other and speaking the truth in love? Friends, many of us have come from a church, come from church backgrounds, where the Sunday morning was a nice facade, where in reality we were just hating one another all the day long. I remember going to a church when I was younger where the kids I would sit next to in church on Sunday would be the same ones who would beat the snot out of me in school on Monday. So, for perhaps obvious reasons, I, and no one else here, at all interested in the Sunday morning facade. Rather, there are lots of people here who want to get to know you, who want to know your story and know you more deeply, but you have to let yourself be known too. So, let me ask you this question. Who knows you? Who else knows your deepest desires and fears and dreams? Does anyone else know your weaknesses and failings as well as they know your strengths and successes? Believe me, I, I know this sounds scary, what I'm asking you to do, to put yourself out there. Because you fear that when people see all your brokenness and sinfulness and ugliness, that they'll reject you or they'll condemn you or maybe they'll abandon you altogether. And that's a legitimate fear that's one that I share at the very deepest levels. And you know why? Because that guy I talked about earlier, that friend I had, the broken, hopeless creature that God saved by grace alone, that's the guy who's talking to you about grace this morning. So I know it's hard to put yourself on display. I know it's hard to admit who you were and who you are apart from God's grace. But what good is a church if we can't be honest with one another? We are all sinful people saved only by grace. How could I possibly reject you when I myself have been accepted? How could any of us possibly judge you when we ourselves have been acquitted? How could anyone here abandon you when we ourselves have been rescued? The answer is that we can't. Otherwise, we're missing the grace of God too. So don't go it alone, my friends. God himself didn't go alone. You know, if anyone could have, it would be God. God could have done anything he wanted. But he chose to do it as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even God himself acted together. And here at Grace Fellowship Church, we want to be together. You are not alone We have small groups that meet right after church most Sundays. We have growth groups that meet throughout the week. We have ladies' retreats that meet throughout the year. And we have tons of people and tons of opportunities to meet one-on-one with someone, to talk about what's going on in your life, and be loved and receive grace to make sure that you do not miss the grace of God. So don't go it alone. There's no reason to. Don't miss the grace of God for that reason. So we've now seen how we've missed the grace of God, but then we were saved by the grace of God. But, I tell you what, we haven't even gotten to the really good part yet. Okay, let's talk about future grace. Verse 7. God saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you want proof that the Bible is authentic? Do you want certainty that the saving work of Jesus Christ is not of man-made origin? Back when I was an atheist, and I started exploring the claims of Christ, like before I was utterly convinced that Christianity was a man-made religion designed to calm and control the masses. That's what I believed. But when I started exploring who Jesus was and what he said, I needed to know, I demanded to know that this Bible that I was putting my faith in was reliable. And so verses like verse 7 here and many others like it in Scripture utterly blew away my doubts. Okay, here's, here's why. If this were a human idea, God would justify us so that He could forever guilt us into doing stuff for Him. If this were a mere mortal idea, God would save us so that, you know, we were always, we always owed Him a favor that He could call in whenever He wanted, like some kind of mob boss in the sky, right? If a bunch of wrong dead dudes sat around in a room trying to come up with a new religion, they would get to this part and never, ever write verse 7. And this is why. Do you see how audacious verse 7 is? Verse 7 says that God's purpose in saving wicked sinners is so that he could give us everything. Without any strings, there's no catches, there's no gotchas, there's no sales speaker, there's no fine print here. This is it. Why do I say this? Verse 7 says, we are heirs. Do you know what an heir is? An heir is someone that means like if, if you're an heir that at some point your relative or your parent or whatever is going to give you everything they have. Someday, whatever's theirs is going to be yours. Guaranteed. All of it. If it's theirs, it's yours. My three boys are my heirs. And every penny I save, every dollar I invest will someday be theirs. Now consider that we are God's heirs. Okay? God possesses infinite strength all wisdom. He possesses limitless happiness and grace beyond measure. And it's all promised to us. This is gonna date me a little bit, but you know you guys know the movie The Lion King? You know, like like old Disney. Like so there's this scene in the Lion King, if you remember it, when when Mufasa, who is the Lion King, is talking to his son Simba. Now all the kids are paying attention. Uh, and and Mufasa, they're, they're sitting on this rock and they're looking out over this desert, basically. Uh, and and Mufasa says, Simba, you know, someday this will all be yours. And Simba gets so excited about this, he sings a little song about how he just can't wait to be king and he bounces around and, and, and yeah. He is excited to receive, as his inheritance, a bunch of dust and carcasses. Okay, that's what he's actually being offered. Watch the movie. That's what happens, okay? Like, God creates galaxies by going like this. Dink, 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 look! (sighs) Like, that is what God does, okay? So, if Simba can be excited, we should be a little more excited, right? Because we are heirs of God's grace, we know that a place is being prepared for us where we will be with God our Savior forever. Because we are heirs of God's grace, a day is coming, the Bible promises us, when there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more pain, and no more death. There will be no miscarriages, no infertility, no broken marriages, no estranged relationships, no aching hearts, no unsatisfied longings, no shattered dreams, and no corruption or impurity of any kind whatsoever. Because we are heirs of God's grace, all the pressures and worries and loneliness and overwhelmness of college life and new jobs and old jobs and money and retirement and family pressures will all seem as but a distant memory or a fading dream. Because we are heirs of God's grace, there is no temptation that we cannot run from, no fear that can overwhelm us, no enemy that can overcome us, and no gate of hell that can stand against us. And because... Our inheritance, according to verse 7, is according to the hope of eternal life. It will never end because we will never end. Because we are heirs of God's grace, we will have joy to the fullest and in increasing measure with God forever and forever and forever and forever. This is what happens to us when we do not miss the grace of God. Do you know what's wrong with today's so-called prosperity preaching? It's that it settles for way, way, way too low a standard. It's an insult to God, right? Like, God promises us limitless grace, and these preachers are going around declaring that God offers us a few bucks for a few years. The God of the Bible promises us endless beach vacations, and here's Joel Osteen getting all in a tizzy about some mud pies in a slum. My friends, we have much better promises than Joel Osteen. And all of it is available to us if we don't miss the grace of God. So how do we apply this? How do we apply future grace? Well, uh, we're going to keep on our Disney theme. In the words of Queen Elsa, let it go. <laughs> There are so many things in this life that we are terrified to lose, right? For some of you, it's your relationships with others or perhaps it's a particular relationship. And so long as these things are intact and everyone is happy with you, then life's good. But if you start to feel tension or if, if things aren't working out quite as you wanted, everything else seems to fall apart, right? For some of you, it's financial security. As long as you have a job or a 401k or 3 months' savings or something like that, life is good. But when those bills come in, when the car needs to be repaired, and the checking account balance starts plummeting, what happens to your joy? All of life suddenly seems bleak, right? For others of you, it's health, or family, or independence, or importance, or perhaps even your own life. That's the thing that, no matter what, you want to hold on to that. But friends, every single one of those things can, and hear this, I promise you, will be taken from you none of these things was designed to last and they won't but if you have believed in the grace of God in his son Jesus Christ not a single ounce of your inheritance can ever disappear it can never be taken away it is guaranteed never to be eaten by moths or destroyed by rust or stolen by thieves now many of us in this church have experienced a real loss I do not deny that, and I don't deny the pain you experience as a result. But knowing there is future grace promised to us, we can let it go. Everything we experience in this life is just this two-second slice of eternity, and then we'll be experiencing unimaginable grace with God our Savior forever. So don't let relationships or money or health or even death cause you to miss the grace of God. When our inheritance arrives, all of these things will simply pale in comparison. So let's finish our time together by taking a very brief look at how Paul says to apply this grace. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Why does Paul say these things? It's because even though we now know the grace of God, we're all prone to still missing it. And when we miss it, we miss out on all these benefits we've been talking about this morning. Hence, Paul says that it's excellent and profitable to remember it. It's also why Paul tells Titus that he must insist. Paul doesn't allow Titus to mention or suggest or propose, but to insist. Paul does not allow any compromising on this point. And that, dear friends, is why we at Grace Fellowship Church insist on it every single week. It's why it's our church principle. It's why it's in our church name, grace. And the fact that we mustn't miss it is so critical. So, Paul tells us what the end result of all this insisting on grace is. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so let me conclude our time in Titus 3 by asking you a question. Consider how you used your free time over the past week and by that I mean like when you weren't at work or in class, How, if you had to give an account of how you used the rest of that time and you showed it to another wise Christian, would they look at that and say, Wow, you've clearly been carefully devoting yourself to good works for Jesus. Or would they wonder if you're missing the grace of God? Now you don't actually have to write that up and hand it to someone because God already knows. Every one of your minutes is being accounted for and God doesn't want you to just be this slave that's to serve him all the time. He wants you to know this limitless grace that's available to you if you stop worrying so much about yourself and your passions and pleasures and instead find greater passion and pleasure in him. Friends, none of us is who we should be. This church is packed full of sinners whose only hope is the grace of God. So let's press on to remind each other of that grace and spur one another on toward good works. Together, let's make sure that none of us misses the grace of God. Let's pray.